Myriad Genetics proudly presents the Modern Urologist Podcast. This casual yet educational podcast is committed to keeping you informed on all things urology so you can continue to provide the highest level of care for your patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Thomas Slavin. I am the Chief Medical Officer of Mirror Genetics. Welcome to the Modern Urologist. So excited to have you here today. We have two special guests. I'll introduce them in a second. We're going to be talking about genetic testing advancements in urology, both germline and tumor. We'll, we'll cover kind of the whole, the whole span. So thanks to everyone. I want to introduce uh, Kara Casas uh, and Angelo Bacala. Uh, so uh, maybe both can do a quick introduction of yourself. Um, you know, what you do in the urology field, uh, for your patients. So, uh, if you want to start Kara. Hi, um, thank you guys so much for attending and for having, um, having us today. I'm Kara Kosis. I am the director of our advanced practice providers in the state of Maryland. We have roughly 30, um, advanced practice providers, my role as far as prostate cancer is concerned <clears throat> deals primarily with getting our advanced practice providers who essentially manage um, most of our most of these advanced clinics um, up to par and sort of um, you know continuing that that educational experience as um, things are changing. So that's really my my role w- w- within our practice. So. Um, we're a fairly big practice within within Maryland. I believe we are somewhere around eighty or so physicians, and like I said, thirty advanced practice providers. Yeah, thanks, Kara. Um, and I said Casas, uh, so you yep. can call me Slavin if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so I probably should have confirmed <laughs> how you I'll say your name to yesterday. Anything? All right. <laughs> well, uh, Doctor Bacala, you want to uh, introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Thank you. Um, my name is Angelo Bacala. I want to. Uh, say thank you to everyone for uh, having us come out and uh, do this uh, this talk today and, and discussion. I look forward to it. Um, I am the uh, division chief of urology for Lehigh Valley Health Network. Uh, we're in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, right around Allentown is where we are situated, and <clears throat> we've spread out quite a bit uh, from there, both north and south and west. Um, so uh, we're uh, just about an hour north of Philadelphia. Um, big weekend coming uh, this weekend, obviously, with the Philadelphia Eagles. Everyone's very excited around here, if you're a Phillies fan. Um, so we're a Philadelphia fan. Um, so we are, um, as the division chief, uh, I uh, also run our center uh, for, um, uh, for robotics and oncology. And so uh, one of my uh, goals is, uh, in, in addition to running the entire practice, is specifically in oncology, I, uh, I operate and, and do uh, urologic oncology procedures. Um, as well as um, make sure that we have pathways set up for all of our oncology um, disease states, um, of course, one of which is prostate. And so we've been um, very, uh, very engaged in promoting genetics for prostate cancer for all various reasons, which we're going to discuss today. And so um, that is uh, pretty much um, my role there. Yeah, no, great. Thank you both for coming on. Um, you know, I'm sure the audience wants to hear a little bit about the perspectives of what's new in the uh, genetic testing world for urology. So, you know, one thing I wanted to start with is, um, you know, there was a recent uh, article uh, from really an annual report from the American Cancer Society around uh, prostate cancer facts and figures. Um, you know, it was uh, showing that there, the incidence of prostate cancer is on the rise. Uh, just wondering your perspectives on that, just to kind of ground everyone on the impact of uh, 
you know, the importance of uh, coming up with uh, really solid treatment plans for individuals with prostate cancer. I think, um, you know, we're going to obviously be seeing more and more of this, and it makes me wonder whether this is a blip or if this is going to just continue in that trend. A lot of people wonder if it's just due to a delayed effect from COVID and patients not following up with their, with their primary care docs. And then, you know, now getting, getting the diagnoses and they're kind of coming at once, people are resuming their care that maybe missed before. That could be, but it could also obviously just be a, an increase that we're seeing. Um, and so, uh, for us, um, you know, this poses a lot of challenges. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we have the bandwidth to make sure we take care of these patients as more are going to be coming through our office space. And so we've tried to you know, find some ways to work around that, um, but also uh, making sure that we have our correct pathways, as we've mentioned, in line so that, you know, we have the right care that we can deliver to all of our patients. Um, and so, you know, that includes our, our testing and whether we're talking about, um, you know, figuring out who needs to be tested, who needs to be biopsied once we find this, these cancers and we know that there's going to be more of them. Do we have the right treatment options available for them? Um, how do we determine what the right treatment options are, right? And that's where genetic testing plays an important role in that. So, um, it's, uh, it's interesting data. I know uh, Pennsylvania, when it's broken down, Pennsylvania is one of the bigger states actually that's involved in that too. Um, so we're going to be seeing a big surge in this area specifically. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Has, has that been affecting um, you, Kara? You've been yeah, noticing so anything? I was going to, so yeah, the, the COVID phenomenon is certainly, um, you know, profound as far as, you know, the delay of care, I think, you know, there could even be consideration to it dating back to, you know, some earlier things. So for people who aren't aware, uh, I think, I believe it was around 2007 ish, there were some recommendations that were made um, by the U.S. Preventative Task Force. So they're the organization that, you know, sort of gives these guidelines based on, you know, high levels of evidence, like when colonoscopy should be done, when, you know, um, the, the, what do you call them? Uh, like breast, uh, mm -hmm. mammograms, mammograms. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but anyway, there was some changes as far as, you know, the routine PSA screenings. And so I think, you know, part of what came out too, is that some people are being diagnosed in a more advanced state. So whether it has to do from a delay of care or simply not being picked up, um, but you know, the, it's, it's, it's challenging because, you know, there was a lot of things and I think we, you know, we probably came out at similar sort of similar times once upon a time, not too long ago, if your PSA was elevated or you had an abnormal digital exam, you moved on to biopsy. And so we were definitely over biopsying people a lot. Um, but now there's this, a lot of shared decision-making and, you know, people don't move on to biopsy right away. Sometimes they're sort of risk stratifying or they're getting a prostate MRI to decide how they should move on. So really, I think things have just changed a lot as far as, you know, where, where they're even coming from and, you know, patients being so, so involved, but, you know, with that being said, there still are a lot of challenges to patients, even having access to care and doing that. So when we see people, um, you know, there are coming in, in these advanced states, um, you know, through the, through the ER, they're coming with extremely high PSAs that weren't necessarily picked up before, you know, with potential routine screenings or because of these barriers um, with the COVID phenomenon as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that's a big shift, um, you know, just to kind of uh, <clears throat> dig in a little bit on the whole concept of active surveillance. I mean, um, yeah, I remember 
you know, and you both probably know much better than me, but I remember in medical school that that was a big controversy when I was in, you know, do you follow men on active surveillance? Um, I was wondering, I mean, maybe for the audience level setting on, on where the field's at uh, in today's um, thinking. I, I think personally, there's been a big paradigm shift in how urologists treat cancer uh, nowadays. It's become, uh, as you mentioned early on, it was very, um, you know, a, it was a hot topic because the, the knee-jerk reaction for most urologists was, if you have cancer, we got to treat you somehow. We have to take out your prostate, mm -hmm. radiation, something. And we clearly were over-treating. That was, you know, not an issue uh, that we don't re recognize or knew about. The difference is, is that um, I think the education has been phenomenal around this topic to the point now where um, all urologists are really aware, you know, acutely aware of the fact that we don't need to treat all prostate cancers. The hard part, though, is figuring out which cancers we need to treat and which ones we don't. Uh, that's really where it becomes challenging. And there's all sorts of things that we use to help us with that, whether it's MRI, the pathology report. But one of the things that has helped us dramatically lately is the addition of genetics at the time of, get, of doing that biopsy to really to determine for us who is the right candidate, because that is probably the most important part of active surveillance in terms of, you know, we all have the, the pathways that we typically, and there might be some variation, but for the most part, we all kind of do the same thing in active surveillance. Mm -hmm. But the question is, who's the right patient? We certainly don't want to be under treating somebody who really needs treatment, um, but we don't want to over treat them as well. So um, I think it's become a, a lot more um, prevalent now, and we are doing a lot more of that. Unfortunately, we have a lot better tools to do it uh, than we used to in the past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Kara, would you agree? Or <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. And then I'd say in addition to that, you know, there's sort of this next level um you know, ba based on all those things, there's the, you know, the next level imaging as well that exists to help sort of, you know, stratify risk too. And so I guess one of the questions that I was thinking about when they're saying that, you know, there's more advanced patients, <clears throat> is it truly that there's more advanced patients that we're just picking it up better, you know, because we have better imaging, you know, as well that maybe we didn't, you know, have access to. So it's sort yeah. of, you know, you kind of have to interpret like what's really happening based on, you know, that we have better tools now than, than we did before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. I mean, um, how do you think this is going to change? I mean, you know, if these rates actually keep increasing though, I mean, whether we're, there's a lead time detection bias or not, you know, with the better tools, I mean, how do you think it's going to start changing clinical practice? I mean, I think, good, Kara, good, please. No, I was just going to say, I mean, so I think definitely, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that there is going to be just a provider um, physician shortage, you know, upcoming. I mean, it seems very clear among, you know, primary and specialists. So I think, you know, there's going to be how do we handle, you know, these patients, the volume um, and getting them to the right, the right people comparatively the shift, you know, everyone sort of went to medical oncology and, you know, urology people didn't really deal with a lot of these things. And that's really shifted um, as well. That a lot of the urology uh, physicians and APPs have sort of taken on trying to manage these advanced, you know, advanced states and, you know, have felt comfortable with adding, you know, the genetic testing with adding, you know, the oral oncolytic treatment, we you know with getting to the treatments that they need with the exception of the services that they don't provide. So I think really there's going to have to be an addition of adding the correct 
uh, team members, whether, you know, that's additional APPs, additional physicians, maybe there is adding an oncologist, you know, the radiation, like getting those essential people into your team, or at least outsourcing within the community, those appropriate team members um, mm -hmm. to be able to handle this population, as well as all the additional treatments that now exist. I mean, before it was like, it was very, you know, unilateral, you know, you got mm -hmm. hormones, you maybe got chemo, you, you, there was that was your option. There wasn't all these other <laughs> things that, that existed. And now there's so many different options that in combinations that, you know, were not part of the treatment, not so long ago. I agree. I mean, I think that there's a really, there's a good opportunity for us actually um, in this space because it's growing and we're, we're seeing so much more advanced disease. As Kara mentioned, with all these different options, it's important that we get people who, we, we have enough providers who can specialize in this because, um, you know, or subspecialize in it, I should say, because there is so many options, it's hard to stay abreast of everything, right? So and there's a lot of options that we can even give right in the neurology office. And we may not even need to send to medical oncology. So number one, you know, having the right people in place who recognize this, understand, uh, you know, like we have uh, advanced practice, uh, or excuse me, um, advanced prostate cancer clinics. Um, and these clinics really help bring these patients together. We make sure we're getting uniformity of care and that the patients know all the different options that are out there, that the providers need to be aware of that. So that, that's mm -hmm. one thing I think that we can do better at is making sure that we are aware of those, but then also uh, identifying who those patients are we have a real opportunity now to potentially offer targeted treatment for people who have certain genetic um, genetic abnormalities. Knowing who they are up ahead of ahead of time will help us provide better care earlier in the process. And I think that's mm -hmm. another important part of this growing population that we need to be aware of. Yeah, uh, well said. And um, you know, how do you how do you both? Uh, involve patients in that shared decision making um, because obviously this is a complex field. You got imaging, genetics, um, you know, the, they're faced with cancer, they're worried about risks of their offspring, or why did I get cancer in the first place? And how am I going to treat it and all the downstream side effects and, and, uh, you know, thoughts of mortality? I mean, how do you how do you bring in then um, the testing aspects, um, you know, whether genetics or imaging into that to have those discussions, you know, PSA and, and, and talk with your patients so that they have a voice? Yeah, I think um, explaining to them the importance of it really so that they understand in, in simple terms, understanding why we're doing, what's the value behind doing the things that we're doing. Um, it's hard because, you you know, you're whether you're talking about shared decision to determine whether or not to biopsy and whether or not to utilize the PSA and do something, or talking about, okay, now you have prostate cancer, we want to do all these other things as well, whether it's imaging or whether it's genetic testing or so forth. It's a long road and it's a lot of information. And so it, number one, it requires time. So to Kara's point, you know, we need to have the providers to be able to do it. Um, but it should be in our hands. It should be with urologists. I think sometimes even with the early shared decision-making was sort of taken out of our hands uh, as some of the task force recommendations were not even checking PSA. It's not the PSA that is the issue. It's what do we do with the cancer, right? That's the issue. If we find it, should we be checking for it? And if we do, how do we treat it? And that's really what urologists and, and uh, urology PAs do best. That's what's our job. And so, and uh, physician assistants and, and, uh, and nurse practitioners do best. Um, and so I think that that's something that we need to um, incorporate and um, and make sure that they have the time to discuss all that because it's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I would say, you know, with respect to at least germline testing. So um, I guess just to make sure everyone on the on the call, I guess, sort of understands we use the term genetic testing, but we're really talking about two different things. One is the germline, meaning, you know, in is there a hereditary gene like that's never going to change. So is there something from your parents, your grandparents, what, you know, there. So particularly for myself with that, I offer all eligible patients that um, upon their diagnosis, their, their genetics will never change, right? They either have it in their gene line or they don't. Um, as far as the other type that I was referring to is called somatic testing, um, in case people aren't exactly sure what that means. And that's the production of an abnormal, abnormal gene, gene from the cancer or the tumor itself um, that can be done either from the tissue or like a distant metastasis site um, or within the, the serum blood. So um, for me personally, I don't always do that at the beginning, um, but I think we're trying to make a shift to have that, but I agree fully having those tools to know, I always like to plan, well, what's the next step? Like if somebody's failing their treatment, what is this? And I think, you know, right now where this exists, as far as a treatment line, they have to have failed several other treatments, you know, to um, be eligible for the, 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 the treatments like the, the PARP inhibitors, for example. But if, um, as things change, I think you you anticipate too that it will there may be that opportunity to use those treatments earlier on, and so we would want to know that information to know how to direct their care, you know, as the research evolves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and um, thanks, Kara. And you you did touch a little bit. <clears throat> Shelley um, put in the chat um, a question. You know, from your expert perspectives, are there unique to tools or things that urologists need to? Be better equipped to utilize genetic testing on a routine basis and what are the barriers to, to this type of regular implementation you know I, I think it segues nicely off of what you're just bringing up i don't know uh, if you want to add to any of that perspective yeah so i think maybe it's just being comfortable with having the conversation so the patient understands why you why you need it um, I mean, I've had people say they're worried about, you know, their insurance, finding out about it, or they're losing, you know, the ability to, you know, have life insurance or, you know, various things. So they don't necessarily understand, you know, some of the implications, you know, of what, what it could mean for, the, for their treatment. So when I initially meet with somebody and I'm telling them, I really say, hey, this is a threefold reason why I would want to get this. One is, um, you know, just to tell us a little bit more about the cancer itself and, you know, then uh, you, just to give me some more information, like what is is this something in there? I may not, I may say it may not make a difference of what we're doing for you to treat you at this moment, but it could be impactful later on. But also when this test is run, it does check for other uh, cancer risks, which is important. I, I have a terrible example, so I'm just going to say it because and you'll see why it's terrible in a moment. So, um, but I think it's, people can understand it. So this is why I use it. So I have some patients that I've, that I've checked and they carry a gene that puts them more at risk for colorectal cancer. So, you know, the standard is that in general, most people get routine colonoscopies on a 10 year basis. And uh, knowing that information, the GI specialists usually will screen them on a more frequent basis, whether it be one, three, five or whatever years, but they're not waiting 10 years if there's a prospective colon cancer, for example. And um, people can conceptually understand that. So I use that example, but like who wants more frequent colonoscopy? So that's why it's not a great example at the same time. Um, but anyway, 
Um, so I say, but it, no, it screens you for other cancers. And then I tell them that, you know, it may make a difference with what they're able to offer you treatment wise. And then if they have genetic children, um, it could make a difference with how their, you know, their children are being screened or manage their personal health. So I try to have that conversation with them, um, you know, so they can understand why we would want to do it. I think the biggest things are really just the time for it and who's filling out the paperwork and, um, you know, just getting those, getting those things. So I've seen various things at, at various offices, you know, whether it's, you know, the medical assistant or there's, you know, a nurse or it's the advanced practice provider. Um, it's not usually the doctors and uh, in our office, um, but it's not that it couldn't be, you know, there's just like one more time consuming thing. So I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, the biggest thing is just taking the time to do it and then filling out the paperwork or there's a question in the comments, or I guess it's a comment in the comments. Um, I would love to see better screening in primary care to identify these men before they get cancer. Let's catch these men and monitor, monitor them better so they get screened and found at an earlier stage. Can you comment on that? I mean, I think that would be great. I think the biggest barrier to that, um, specifically around um, the the genetic component would be just being able to be eligible if there is not um, like a family history or something and just the insurance ramifications right now. But I would love to not have people come to me metastatic for sure if they're getting, you know, uh, some routine shared decision, uh, medical uh, PSA or digital exam. Uh, ing. So I find in general that doesn't happen so much anymore but i think those are the, the biggest things or at least having some baseline at some point whether maybe it's not every year or something like that but you know just being able to have it and it's really challenging i mean primary care physicians are so boggled down with everything you know they're hearing and they're trying to condense this into this you know 15 minute visit sometimes you know that's just one more thing on there so having a shared decision making is one a challenging thing to then you know screen on top of the 20 mm -hmm. other things you're trying to do about you know prostate cancer yeah i, I would yeah. agree I, mean, I think it goes back to the psa testing you know kind of as we mentioned earlier uh, there's a lot of confusion brought out there with the united states preventive task force recommendations and you know those things really i think uh, are at the heart of making sure that we find these patients early Everyone understands and knows that it's not a great test. We all agree. A urologist agree. Uh, everyone in that field agrees. But it is what we have as an initial test. And I think it still should be done. Um, it should be done appropriately and judiciously. And when it's done, you know, that's where um, urology practices should take over at that point and, uh, and talk about, you know, do we need to do further testing? Do we just watch this? What, to, what do we do? Um, and I think that's the way that we're going to find these patients a little bit earlier and be able to offer them better treatment mm -hmm. options when it's indicated. Yeah, I, I remember in medical school, a good way to get uh, lectured too was uh, suggest PSA testing for screening <laughs> for, for someone 20 years ago. And then and then things swung back saying it's okay to, to do it again um, because, uh, you know, uh, the, the thought for a long time was just do digital rectal exams only. Well, and to Kara's point, I mean, I think medical doctors are, are overwhelmed. I mean, there's, it's a lot of stuff. And now there's all these different pathways, these different things that they're required to do. And it's, it's a lot. And, you know, to expect to have them have this decision-making discussion after a PSA that's maybe slightly abnormal, what do we do with it? that's not really, you know, it, it's not going to be possible, quite frankly. Um, it's just too much. Um, so, um, you know, they need to call on us, you know, refer. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of elevated PSAs that just come over to us in consultation. And it's been a total shift because like I said before, like people would just more automatically move on to biopsy, but now people really want to talk about it. They want to get, you know, some risk stratification stuff. They want to know more about the number before they make the decision. And I'm, I don't know if you're seeing that in your practice, but I definitely am seeing that, you know, there's been a a big shift for a lot of more specialty testing and, you know, discussion around moving forward with a biopsy rather than, you know, moving forward with a biopsy as a next step. Mm -hmm. One of the questions that came in before the call from one of the patient advocacy groups was, uh, do we really need shared decision-making for PSA tests when other cancer tests do not demand this? Can you talk a little bit about the shared decision-making about getting PSAs? I think that in terms of even just getting PSAs, the decision-making that needs to happen is perhaps in older patients, um, patients who have family history. Uh, that's where that discussion needs to be done um, because I think it should be relatively routine. I agree. And in, in your average patient, you know, your 50 year old to your 70 year old, it should, should be part of their normal workup. But in someone who's younger but has family history, that's where they need to understand in terms of catching them early. This is an important part of, of, their, of their workup, their medical workup. And someone who's over the age of 70 who's had a normal PSA all along, do we still need to follow that? Probably not. If their PSAs have been one and they're 70 years old, we don't need to check that again. Um, you know, but that's that's where I think that discussion needs to happen. Um, short of that, though, I don't disagree. I think it should be pretty uniform in the 50 to 70 year old uh, age group. This is what the AUA recommends. This is what we should be doing. Yeah, and let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, <clears throat> yeah. The, genetics show. We'll we'll dive a little deeper into genetics. So you know, there's there's essentially, you know, three main buckets for genetics. I mean, I think we touched on um, all of them to some extent, but it's probably good to define them out a little bit more. So, and, and there is overlap between them uh, that uh, makes things more fun. But, you know, we already talked about hereditary risk. Uh, so that's one. Uh, we talked about, um, you know, then if you get cancer, um, you know, there's tools now to help understand um, you know, is this something that, uh, you know, I can watch and wait, is this something that's aggressive? Uh, so, uh, gene expression profiling being the, the large uh, genetic test there. And then, um, also, you know, in the case of advanced metastatic disease, you know, Hey, what, what kind of mutations are in this tumor that can lead to, um, you know, some sort of testing and targeted therapy, like, uh, we, um, you know, Kara brought up PARP inhibitors would be a good example of that. Um, just curious how, how each of you use these tools in your practice, uh, specifically because, you know, it's complex and, um, uh, you know, there, there's different areas where you'd use different tools and, and, um, you know, sometimes even in urology, um, you know, maybe pass off to the medical oncologist before doing, uh, the genetic testing on the tumor. I think everybody practices a little bit differently. So yeah, I would just love your perspectives on how you see the field. Uh, evolving as these tests are, are relatively new, you know, I mean, these are, you know, really in the last 10, 20 years, uh, we didn't have these tools. You know, I think we saw the importance of the genetic profiling of, of prostate cancer uh, tissue very early on. So if someone has prostate cancer, uh, we get profiling of all of those patients, you know, we get um, a test, the, uh, we get our Prolaris test, which uh, runs and, and looks at um, uh, cell cycle progression genes to determine Basically, is this what we think we're seeing from a pathologic standpoint? Because we know that 
this genetic testing can outperform purely looking at genetic, excuse me, purely looking at uh, pathology, which is very important because we used to base all of our decisions on how aggressive our treatment's gonna be, or are we gonna watch them and do surveillance purely based on path? And, and we know now that that's really not the, uh, not the end all be all of decision-making. So uh, we get this on all of our patients. Um, and we do that right through our pathology office. Uh, they know that if a prostate cancer is positive, they're going to send it out. We use that for all levels. Um, and so the reason that, you know, we think that's important, it helps us to determine whether or not it's active surveillance, whether or not if it's, they move, move into the active treatment, do we do single treatment? If we're talking about prostate, uh, prostate radiation, do we just give them radiation? Do we add mm -hmm. hormones on? If it's even surgery, we start, we're starting to look now at what type of surgery do we do? Do we do something more aggressive if they are on that, on that continuum of being in a multimodal therapy? Is this someone who's going to probably need radiation? It's a discussion with the patient. Do we say, hey, listen, we're going to do a prostatectomy. There's a good chance you're going to need radiation afterwards. Um, or do we also do something intraoperatively? Do we do more of an extended lymph node dissection? There's no data on that that necessarily says it's better. But my point though, is that in that discussion with the patient, we let them know, hey, this is something a little bit more severe than maybe what you know, someone else your age and your pathology and your PSA would typically present with. And I think that's important to have for the patient, it sets expectations. Um, so uh, yeah, that's an area that we use it for. I think that's important. Kara, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, our, that happens on a physician level, you know, at, at the time of biopsy as well. And I, I think, yeah, that it's been very um, important for determining how the treatment pathway, like you, like you mentioned, whether it looks more like a surgery, you know, just a radiation um, with ADT, radiation, trimodal, like, I mean, I think a lot of treatment decisions are being made, you know, on, on that information. Um, I'd say that, you know, one thing that I would like to see us a little bit better with that we're trying to work on as a practice ourselves is that with respect to patients who are uh, metastatic um, at, at, their, at their diagnosis, um, sending that for a, um, a somatic tissue test may make sense in that setting too. The thing is, if the tissue um, is too old, so I believe it has to be at least 10 years or, le or less than 10 years um, for accuracy of, of, a, of an abnormal gene. So um, I think we're trying to get better at having that be more of a reflexive thing. Um, so we would know um, while the tissue is still viable and fresh, if, if that is something that we can then use later, um, probably will be more, again, impactful um, as the um, therapies may exist more early on than where they currently do in the treatment um, algorithms. Mm -hmm. and, and I think offering it to the patients, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, it, it's so important. We follow NCCN guidelines, right? That's kind of what we're tasked to do. And we do that. And so, um, you know, lining that up with the right patients, people who are metastatic, they need that testing. It's a, it is what it is, right? We should be getting it right away. Uh, but also more aggressive patients or patients who maybe don't have as aggressive disease, but have family history. So that history taking the, uh, the pathologic diagnosis really kind of leads us into who should be getting that somatic testing, um, which is so very important in directing future care as, uh, as Kara mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. What, what kind of barriers do you see in your, in your practices uh, to doing this testing? I mean, are there times you're, you're like, ah, I wish I could do a test, but I just can't for whatever reason. 
I think in general, not so much, you know, um, we sometimes worry about coverage and things like that. Unfortunately, I think Medicare has aligned with NCCN guidelines now. So we are, um, we are okay from a Medicare standpoint for that. But um, more so, I think thinking about it from a practice standpoint is ensuring that we have uniformity across the practice that it's being done everywhere. Uh, that can sometimes be an issue. And so we've set up I think pathways are, you know, I'm a huge believer in that. I've mentioned this a couple of times already, even just today, but I'm a huge believer in that for any practice that's successful. I know the, the practice in Maryland does a great job with that uh, for sure. Um, and we've tried to do the same here. And, and this is one area that it, whether, no matter what you're talking about in neurology, but I think specifically for today's discussion in prostate cancer, making sure that patients are following this pathway. So, you know, are we getting good history? Are we really evaluating the path and are we doing and we following NCCN guidelines across the, across the group? Um, and that's something that we constantly go back to. So one challenge I've seen is that um, sometimes like, I, I agree completely that Medicare is, is, is fully on board, but some of the commercial payers put this intermediate step where instead of just ordering it, they have to have speak to a genetic counselor um, before the insurance will authorize the, the testing to be done. And so um, you know, there's there's a lot of steps that involve like the patient, and while you know, the companies you know, I know you guys have made it very easy, by the way, they, they, the genetic council will just call them. Um, but then the patient has to answer the phone and nobody wants to answer a number they don't know. So there's all these things that, you know, then happen that if it's not, uh, you know, just an automatic thing by the insurance side that, um, kind of stand in the way of moving forward with the test actually being done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do you feel that the field is embracing all of this? I mean, urologists as a whole, uh, it seems like uh, there's different uh, practice patterns emerging. Some are embracing genetic testing, some are not necessarily, some are even, um, you know, getting a little bit more into chemotherapy, some are than others. Yeah, I think, uh, TJ, I think it really, it's a, it's a big issue with education. I really think that's what it just comes down to. I think when, when you're all just really understand and know it, the education's out there, but you know, are they sticking to it? Are they getting the, the message across that it's important? Um, I I don't disagree. I don't think that there's uniformity in uh, in care. I think we can do a better job of that as urologists as a whole. Um, and uh, and I think things like this hopefully help that people really understand this. Is, these are guidelines. These are things that we should be doing. Um, you know, it, we see this in different pockets and different areas of urology as well. But uh, this is, I think, a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, not unique to urologists either. I mean, I think we see this across medicine. You have early adopters, uh, you know, uh, adopters that wait for, for guidelines and then sometimes folks that, that tend to lag on uh, these kind of things. Um, you know, I was going to ask too, I mean, how important do you think it is having one uh, like local solution, you know, Kara, you brought up uh, the paperwork and things, uh, you know, how important is it to you in your workflow just to have one easy place to get all this type of testing? Oh, I, I mean, I think that the easier it is, the more adaptable everyone will be to it. So whatever that process is, um, I, w- I met another group and honestly, they hired um, a young lady and her job was just to do the genetic aspect. Like it was a full-time job and a practice. So believe it or not, I mean, things like this can exist as a, as a full-time opportunity um, w- within practices. So whether you're pulling somebody who's being, you know, 
in other directions, but I think it's just really figuring out the proper workflow and what works for your particular organization. Mm -hmm. I would agree. As I mentioned, workflow is so important that if you, the whole idea behind workflow is making it easy, right? So if you're getting a test from a certain area and it's, you know, the pathway is set up there, have a portal, it can get the information. And then, you know, as the patient progresses or as patients come in with different types of stages of disease, you may want to order different types of testing. Having it all in one location is what makes that pathway run and makes it smooth. Um, You know, as as Kara said, that could be a full-time job and we're all struggling with FTEs as it is now, you know, so we need to make it as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was part of the reason we um, just launched uh, what's called Eurosuite, which uh, includes germline and Prolaris testing for gene expression profiling, and then the tumor testing as well for, for decisions. Uh, we're hearing a lot of that feedback that, yes, can, can we make it easy for providers to order these things? We already launched the tumor test uh, uh, last year in our oncology um, business unit. So uh, it was thought that, yes, let's make it easy for the urology team as well. Yeah, I mean, in our office, we have a portal set up. We can literally click on the types of tests that we want from Eurosuite, make it all happen and go. I mean, that that's hugely beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the portal slows me down just a little bit because I'm not like a good typer like that. But I, on the local level, like we've had our, our representatives just have the applications filled out with, you know, all of our information, our office, you know, locations, you know, basically all of the administrative parts. So literally we're just putting in the patient information and the, even the, the test is checked. So, you know, the I think the more automatic you make something, the easier it is for everyone to, you know, want to try to take it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, let's pause there for questions. Um, this was really good discussion, covered a lot of ground. Any, any questions out there in our audience for our two special guests? Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, it's Rosalind. Um, I really, I really appreciate what y'all are doing. And um, so far, with us using the myriad um, testing, it, it's I, there's so much about it that I like. Um, just, just I don't really have any questions, but I just wanted to commend the company um, for always taking that extra step and staying, you know, on top of all the new um, technology and science that's out there. Um, because you know as well as I know, there's lots of competitors, and um, I don't. I just in, I enjoy um, the product that y'all have, and and the forms and the reports are are easy for us to, you know, analyze and understand. And I just uh, wanted to thank y'all for it. Oh, thanks, Rosalind. Nice, nice feedback. So I agree. I think that's a really important point. You know, we get this testing and um, we have certain things. You, you guys have a great diagram. Um, for those uh, on the call who haven't seen this, um, you know, maybe haven't ordered it, you, you would see this on the one there where uh, they have, you know, the prostate cancer is stratified by the different risk groups and then they show kind of where you should, where the typical patient should be, but then the continuum of where they could potentially be in that group and where they put a little, you know, a little, figure of where your patient is uh, in that continuum. And that's a really easy way, I think, for patients to understand where they stand against their peers. 
other person just like me who has a mice type of prostate cancer might be more aggressive or less aggressive than that, you know? And that's just an easy, quick view. You can just show them and say, this is where genetically, this is where you're showing. And that's the whole point of the test is, you know, not everybody's the same. Um, and we shouldn't be treating them as such because someone has Gleason 7 cancer. Okay, you know, there's a lot of, lot of variation there. And so we use genetics to help them. And, and those types of things that you guys provide, I think are hugely beneficial. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was going to say similarly on like the mutation side of things too, the report is very easy. You know, it gives a big plus sign. You can't miss it. And, you know, by history, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a genetic person. I've learned a lot over, you know, ordering many tests, but, you know, spelling it out and then having the accessibility to um, the genetic team, like Rob, who's on the call. I mean, I call him, I email him. I'm like, what does this mean? <laughs> and, you know, the patients having the ability to also be able to connect with a genetic counselor um, themselves too, instead of seeing an outside party. I think it's, um, you know, been very um, patient friendly as well as provider friendly. Yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate it. Um, so what do, what do you think, um, you know, for, for both of you, I mean, what do you think is the, the future of all this? I mean, where, where you know, what, what would you like to see? What's on your wish list? You know, where, where do you think we're, we're headed? I think in general, you know, I think all cancer care is going to be headed towards um, precision medicine, right? I mean, we're going to have selective tests to be able to do certain things and be able to, to affect um, <coughs> care in a way that we can, you know, selectively work out what's the best treatment option for you. And really, that's what we're already doing uh, with it now. And I think it's just going to get better and better, um, especially for our more advanced folks um, in the somatic testing space. Um, you know, when we start seeing um, certain genetic alterations and we have uh, treatments that specifically target those genetic alterations, um, we're going to get the best uh, bang for our cure, for our, you know, for our treatment. And that's what we're looking for. Unfortunately, a lot of patients in the past have been treated as standard and uh, nobody is, right? Everyone is sort of selective. And the more we can find out ways to, to make that work, the better. Yeah, agreed. Any other thoughts there, Kara? I was going to pretty much say, say the same thing. Yeah, I think it's just going to be very directed, individualized patient care once we, you know, narrow in on a little bit better than we already mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we can start doing some better risk assessment for uh, the, the, the 30 and 40 somethings, uh, you know, men that, um, you know, sometimes we're not the best going into the doctor. Uh, so we'll have to get creative as a medical community on how to access those individuals and make sure we're doing appropriate risk stratification because it, it's a hard group sometimes to reach. Yeah. No, good. Um, I do have a question in the private chat. Um, it says, I should have asked this earlier and still waiting t- instead of waiting until the end, but I understand that germline testing is hereditary and somatic is the tumor, but won't they show the same thing? Is it necessary to get both? That's a great question. So the answer is no, they won't, they don't necessarily correlate. And I forget the exact number you guys will have to, um, is it 10% that they will not? Well, they're two different things, basically. But um, I, I was just trying to remember that the percentage of the time you will detect a somatic versus a germline and vice versa. Lots yeah, so the literature shows 
up yeah. to about 17% of the time, we'll find a germline mutation in a prostate cancer patient. And then looking at some of the clinical trials for PARP inhibitors, it was about 28% um, chance of finding a mutation in the tumor itself. Thanks. See, this is why like, it's so important to have a <laughs> person on the line. Um, but so the answer is no, they, they don't show the same thing. And that's really why, why it's, it, it's good. I mean, I, I always find, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword when I find somebody who has, who has, you know, a, a positive mutation on one aspect, I'm like, yes, I have another treatment for them. But um, I think that their cancers tend to be more aggressive overall, which is sometimes when we're checking this up front, I think there's decisions that are being made on, you know, if you're in the, do I treat or not treat um, thought process and they do have something, people are moving forward with treatment because they tend to be more aggressive. So, you know, that part isn't great, right? That they may have a, a worse, more aggressive cancer. So why and you're sort of saying it's, it's, it's two-sided. I think as a clinician, you're, you're happy you have something, but you also don't want them to have it. Yeah. I, I think it's important for, for everyone, you know, who's asking the questions to understand that, you know, there are mutations which put you at risk of getting cancer. And those are the germline mutations that we know and, and will potentially, you know, get you there. And, and unfortunately it lets you have cancer, but cancer being what it is, cancer mutates. It changes all the time. And that's the idea behind it. That's, that's why they survive. And a lot of times, you know, we'll throw things out and try to kill them and they survive and find a way to, to still live because they continue to mutate. That's what makes the suckers so horrible. So um, as they mutate and they start changing, they may pick up more additional mutations. And that's why in, in the somatic testing space where we start testing met metastases and things like that, we may find a different set of genes that are now mutated and changed. And now it's another, it becomes another target for us. Mm -hmm. That's why both are important. Yeah, and we didn't even talk about liquid uh, biopsy, which is kind of the next phase of all this too. So looking at the tumor mutations, just from um, looking at what's floating around in the blood and particularly metastatic patients. So that's something we're, we're working towards uh, bringing up uh, at the moment. Uh, and that'll, that'll add another layer to all this, because then uh, that's always a confusing test of patients too, because then you're looking for tumor mutations in someone's blood. <laughs> so they, they get confused what that test is for a lot of times. Any other questions for our special guests? Do you find patients who are resistant to these types of new and extra tests? For these types of patients, how do you talk to them and what do you make sure to cover? Good question. A hundred percent, yes. Um, so I think, so I mean, when I, when I tell them about the test and I explain that and I just say, I usually say like, is that something you would wanna know? Or is that something you'd be interested in? I'd say the majority of people, yes, they, they are in interested in the information, but I have other people who say, well, what am I going to do with it? I don't want to know. Like they just, they really don't want to know. They're like I already have cancer. So like, I don't want to have anything worse. I don't want you to find something. So absolutely. I think the other ramification is people are always worried about what is this test going to cost? Hands down, they say, does my insurance cover this or not? The one thing I, I, I think is great about Myriad itself is before they'll run a test, if there is a cost to the patient, they will contact them and let them know, hey, there's going to be this cost. There's the ability to, you know, uh, apply for financial aid, but they won't, you know, necessarily call, you know, charge the patient for, for a test that um, is, not, is not covered, which I think is great because people are very, very economically conscious these days. 
Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that the cost is probably the biggest uh, barrier to a lot of people wanting to do it. And that's one of their biggest concerns. Usually, you know, I, I think when we think about genetic testing, sometimes we talk about just testing people because they, maybe they have a family history. This is different, right? We're testing people who have cancer. And then a lot of times, once they have cancer, they come in, you say, hey, listen, we found this. Now we want to get this testing on you. It, that I think that, you know, that the window of people, that group of people who are resistant really narrows quite a bit because you're dealing with a different patient population. They have cancer. Now they're worried, okay, well, what does this mean for other generations, my kids? What does it mean mm -hmm. for me in terms of how you're going to treat me and things like this? And so they tend to be a, a more accepting of it, but certainly there's, there's always resistance, as Kara said, you know, and people are, everybody, there's never going to be hundred percent. And so uh, being able to explain to them the test, why, why it's important, really understanding you know, the why behind the test is important. Um, and I think that's what, you know, that's what we do best. That's, that's our job. Mm -hmm. I think it depends yeah, well too, like said. what stage you catch them into. Like if I'm, if somebody's just newly diagnosed and it isn't not to say it won't make a difference right now, but it maybe won't make a difference. I say like, let's table it right now, but I would probably encourage you to get this again or, you know, to revisit this as your disease is advancing. So nothing is ever closing the door and people, you know, a lot of cancer, I think is a gradual acceptance and hearing and revisiting and revisiting again, you know, a lot of the treatments and, you know, them, them hearing it multiple times and kind of wrapping their head around it. Some people, you know, yeah, I'll do this. I'll do whatever. Um, but you know, sometimes there's a lot of discussion around moving on to those and, and why it's important. So if they don't do it and they're not an early adapter, certainly if they're failing in their treatment, I, I really say this is the time we really need to do this. I really need this answer. No, no, good. No, any other questions? Uh, they, the bad news here is that prostate cancer incidence seems to be going up a bit, but the good news is, uh, as, as you've heard, that uh, we have uh, new and emerging tools that are uh, making it easier uh, and better to treat prostate cancer. So thank you so much, Kara uh, Kosas and uh, Dr. Bacala uh, and Rob for uh, helping just make this really a fantastic educational webinar. Um, you know, this was huge, but uh, again, can't thank you enough uh, to our special guest today. Uh, covered a lot of ground. Uh, hopefully everyone took away that this is a, a very rapidly emerging field um, and that, you know, genetics is really becoming standard care across all aspects of medicine. Thanks everyone for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Myriad Genetics. If you'd like to learn more about our genetic testing solutions to personalize prostate cancer treatment, visit myriad.com. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to share, subscribe, or leave us a review. Until next time.